The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're starting tonight, second booklet. I hope you got it with the uh, darker blue cover. Uh, as we continue our study of evangelism, uh, tonight we're going to get to the topic of the role of the Holy Spirit in evangelism. Now, uh, I'm taking the order of this uh, evangelism course that I wrote a few years ago in the order it's found. Um, we just covered a number of these topics in our study in Grudem on the Holy Spirit. Um, but there'll be some differences too. Uh, there we were just following the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and just trying to understand in general what the Spirit's ministry was, and we touched on His role in witnessing. Now we're going to just zero in on, on, in a more comprehensive and concentrated way, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in evangelism? So uh, we begin uh, on uh, page 1. I don't think they're numbered, uh, but the Holy Spirit there, it says, is given to the church to empower it to witness for Christ. The Spirit actually testifies about Christ to us, uh, through us to the unsaved world. So let's turn to the uh, first page of doctrinal instruction and get into it. First, we want to talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And let's never forget that the Holy Spirit is a gift to us. It's an incredible thing to be indwelt with a third person of the Trinity. Isn't that incredible? I mean, to have the, the Holy Spirit living within us. And so, for the daily life of a believer, the greatest difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Indwelling Holy Spirit. The Spirit enables the believer to live an obedient life by writing the law of God on his or her heart and by empowering the believer to choose the right way. And so, we have Romans 8, 1 through 4. It says, There is no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, spirit has set us free from law. That's the way I understand it. When you have the indwelling spirit, you don't need the law. The law, it says in another place, is for the murderers, the transgressors, the wicked, etc., to hold them under so that they don't go wild, etc. We live at a higher level. You know, we don't murder because it's commanded not to murder. We don't murder because of the way we are constituted now as new creations in Christ. We don't need to be told that kind of thing. And so ever higher until our sanctification is done. That's what it means. That's my interpretation of what it means that we're not under the law. It doesn't mean we're free to murder now. It just means we don't need the law in order to live that kind of life. Rather, it says that the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death because what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the sinful man, the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. What does that mean? Romans 8, 1 through 4, I just quoted that. Basically, the Spirit has come to enable us to live according to the law. The Spirit has, in some sense, written the law of God on our hearts. He's working the law from inside out. Part of that new life of spiritual obedience is witnessing to the world of the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Part of that new life. Uh, so if you believe what I just put in that little diamond there, the third statement, then how many Christians, spirit-filled Christians, what percentage of spiritual Christians ought to be involved in witnessing? 
100%. Okay? Now, you may say to me, but that's not my spiritual gift. Okay? Well, that's a different matter, isn't it? That's a different matter, and it's easy to prove by just looking at the gifts of the Spirit. very good example of that is uh, the gift of faith is listed in, second, in, in 1 Corinthians, right? The spiritual gift of faith. Now, I would think that every single Christian has, in some sense, the gift of faith. Let me remind you of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So therefore, every Christian has the gift of faith, but not in the sense that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 12. You see what I'm saying? So therefore, just because you don't have the gift of faith doesn't mean you don't have any faith at all. And just because you don't have the gift of evangelism doesn't mean you don't need to evangelize at all. I believe with the indwelling spirit inside, uh, he's going to work witnessing in you. And it's only by quenching the spirit that you do not witness or I don't. You see what I'm saying? The spirit wants to move us to witness. It is an act of the quenching of the spirit to not witness. That's what the Spirit's working in us. The Holy Spirit is given to the church to empower it to witness for Christ. The Spirit actually testifies about Christ through us to the unsaved world. We join the Spirit's testimony with our lives, our actions, and our words. A very good example of this is uh, at the end of the book of Revelation, as we've quoted before, the Spirit and the bride say, come. Also, we get this in John in, I think, chapter 15, where it says, when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will testify about me. And you also must testify. Do you see that? It's a cooperative work. The spirit testifies, we must testify. The spirit says, come, the bride says, come. Together, uh, we, we do this work. So the spirit works in and through us to testify to the world. Without the spirit's work in us, we would never have become Christians in the first place. That's a good thing to keep in mind. We are Christians now because the Spirit has worked in us. We would never be Christians in the first place. Uh, without the Spirit's work in us also, we will never be witnesses for Christ now. Isn't that wonderful to know? Uh, when you have stepped out in faith, you have been courageous, you have witnessed, you have shared the gospel with somebody. You can go back to this statement or understanding the statement and say, thanks be to God that through the Spirit I was able to witness. He gets all the glory. It's through his power that you did it. Isn't that wonderful to know it wasn't just you doing it? So to God be the glory, whenever you're faithful in witnessing, to God be the glory, he sent forth the Spirit to help you. In fact, without the Spirit's continual work in us, we would cease believing in Christ altogether and would sink back into the mass of unbelievers in the world. Now, you may say to me now, Pastor, I thought you told me once saved, always saved. Well, I never told you that. First of all, salvation is an ongoing process. Now, if what you're asking is once justified, always justified, now that I agree to. Okay, but I didn't say you were saved, although in some sense we do use the past tense. There are some verses that use it. And in that sense, that can never be taken from us. You see what I'm saying? But the Spirit is doing an ongoing work in us. What do you think would happen to you if the Spirit stopped working in you altogether? If the triune God pulled back from you all of his resources and just left you to the world of flesh and the devil and your own devices to keep on believing. How long do you would keep how do you, how long do you think you'd keep on believing in Christ? It wouldn't take long for the devil to concoct a series of temptations that would lay you low. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 22, Simon Simon Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you Simon that your faith may not fail. And I believe 
It's not just that Jesus prays that our faith may not fail, but he sends forth the spirit and the spirit's power that our faith may not fail. So we are in a constant way dependent on the Holy Spirit for everything, not just for witnessing, just for your very Christian life, that you would continue believing, that you wouldn't yourself need to be a target of evangelism 10 years from now, okay? So it's by the Spirit's power that we continue to believe. That's the gift of the Spirit, among other things. Secondly, let's talk about the Spirit's evangelistic power. Great evidence for the Spirit's constant power and drive to fulfill the Great uh, Commission is found in the book of Acts. If you ask me what I think the book of Acts is about, I think the book of Acts is about the power of the Spirit through the church, moving it from the city of Jerusalem and being a Jew-only church to uh, start to fulfill the command to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. That's what the story of the book of Acts is about, by the power of the Spirit from Jew only to Jew plus Gentile and moving out geographically. That's the whole thing. The Spirit moving the church to witness. That's the book of Acts, and it's an exciting book. Uh, Some people say that the theme of the whole thing is in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, the Old Testament prophets have spoken very clearly of Christ's worldwide kingdom. Psalm uh, 2, 7 and 8 says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Isn't that marvelous? Who's speaking to whom there in Psalm 2? Who is speaking to whom? The Father is speaking to the Son, telling Him to do what? Ask of me. Ask for what? What does the Father want the Son to ask for? Asking for the world. Give me the world. Go ahead, ask me for the world. And uh, I'll give it to you. Uh, Do you think the Son has gone on and asked? Has He asked for the world? Yes, He has. Jesus, you can see in the Great Commission, says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he asked for it and God gave it. All right. Now it was time for the church to move out and fulfill these prophecies. It's time for the church to go do it. The church must move out. But it could not do so unless God sent his power through the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit was given to accomplish this is one of the major themes of the book of Acts. You notice how the, how the church continues to be in the upper room waiting until the power of the Spirit comes. It's when the power of the Spirit comes that they go through the doors out into the streets and start moving. And you might say, well, weren't they commanded to wait there? Yes, they were. Uh, But that's no proof that they didn't need it. I think it's proof that they did need it. (laughs) Don't go anywhere until you get the Spirit. (laughs) You'll just make a mess of it. So just wait until the Spirit comes. And when the Spirit comes, then you will move. And you could also see to some degree the fear in the church. They're afraid of reprisals or being arrested. They're afraid perhaps or weak. They, they're not world changers yet. Not until the Spirit comes on them. Yes, Susan? Is it still something that the church Well, I think there are certain rhythms in the life of the church. Let's remember that the day of Pentecost has come and gone. Uh, it's a, an amazingly important moment in redemptive history, and we're beyond it. And it says in Acts 2, uh, the promise 
is it says believe in the lord jesus and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit the promises for you and your children for all who are far off as soon as you believe you receive the spirit we don't need to wait like for a new pentecost however i do think it's it's occasionally good like in acts 13 for local churches to get together and pray and ask the lord to fill them anew with the spirit and give them boldness that's fine but uh, I don't think you need to say uh, you have an internal prompting of the spirit to go witness to a, a woman or a man over there. And you, you just feel like yeah, this is the time. And you say, well, I'm going to wait for the coming of the spirit. All right. The spirit's already come. Where do you think that 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 drive, that desire came from? It's the spirit moving and you need to go and not quench the spirit. But I do think in a practical sense, it's good for churches like ours to gather and ask the Lord to fill us anew with the spirit. And uh, he does. He will. So that's a good question. Very good question. All right. So number three, power for the evangelists. The Holy Spirit has come to bring power uh, to those that take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The Spirit's power in evangelism works on both the evangelists and the evangelized. We'll look at both of them tonight. But he's going to work both ends of the spectrum. Isn't that beautiful? At both ends of the equation, he's at work on the one bringing the gospel, but he's already been at work on the one about to receive it. We'll talk about the second in, in, a, in a few minutes, but let's start with the first. He works on the evangelist. He works on us. First, power for bold proclamation of the gospel. Acts 5.32. This is Peter speaking to the Sanhedrin, Peter and the apostles. We are witnesses of these things. <clears throat> and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. It's such a beautiful thing. Peter is so bold in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Isn't it re- remarkable? And here's a man just a month and a half removed from denying the Lord three times before the rooster crowed and how the spirit has come and restored him and, and made him ready to witness so boldly on the day of Pentecost. And uh, Acts chapter four, again, we see the great boldness of Peter and John, uh, incredible boldness. They're, they're so filled with courage and they're willing even to be arrested and killed. Uh, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, they say in Acts chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, they arrest them and they actually beat all the apostles. And uh, you know they say, we must obey God rather than you. And then it says here, we are witnesses of these things, these things being the resurrection. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit testifies to the resurrection of Christ and he does it through witnesses. And it says, whom God has given to those who obey him, in other words, if you haven't received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you know why you're not obeying the gospel. Secondly, the Holy Spirit uh, gives power for miracles to gain a hearing for the gospel. Now, some would say the Holy Spirit gave power for miracles. Others would say, no, the Holy Spirit gives power for miracles. I'm not getting into that tonight. I will say this, however, it's clear in the book of Acts again and again that the signs and wonders are done to gain credibility for and a hearing for the gospel. In other words, there's a connection between the miracles that are done in the book of Acts and the gathering of a crowd and a validation of the gospel. Okay, very good example of this. Uh, They ask for it in Acts 4, uh, 29 and following. It says, now, Lord, consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they, uh, I'm sorry, I did the wrong one. Uh, miracles. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Better example of this, it's not even listed here. Acts chapter 14. It says he, in Acts 14, I think it's verse 3. Christian, we just studied this on Sunday. Is it verse 3? Where it says he can, look at that, look it up for us because we were studying that this past Sunday. Acts 14, 
the, uh, Paul and Barnabas are in uh, Lystra, is it? Go ahead and read that verse. Do you see that? He he bore witness to the gospel by doing signs and wonders. Do you see? <clears throat> the signs and wonders. What's the reference on that? Acts 14. It is 14.3. All right. In Acts 14.3. Uh, Acts 14.3 gives clear indication there that the signs and wonders testified to the validity of the gospel. You get the same thing in Hebrews 2.4 as well. Uh, Hebrews 2, it says he testified, God testified to it by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So we have power for miracles. Sorry that I read the wrong verse there. Uh, number three, power for courage in the face of vicious persecution. You know, you should uh, meditate on this yourself. If you feel like you lack courage in witnessing, it's the Spirit's job to get you off the dime. It's the Spirit's job to get you moving beyond that. Um, and he does that by giving courage. Again, Acts 4.29. This is after they're threatened with persecution. And by the way, let's not imagine for a moment that it was an idle threat. Jesus said it wasn't an idle threat. He said if the, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of the household? It's a logical argument implying that you'll get what kind of treatment compared to Jesus? Worse treatment. Isn't, you see the argument. He said, if the master has been treated like this, how are they going to treat the servants? You're just servants. I'm the master and they crucified me. So how could we expect better treatment? And so it's not an idle threat that they, the Sanhedrin made in Acts 4 saying, stop <coughs> preaching in this name. Stop it. They basically were threatening them with death because they had already killed Jesus. Well, facing that, it says, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Isn't that marvelous? You see the connection. They pray, the Spirit comes, they're filled with boldness and, do, and they do what? As a result, they speak. They actually open their mouths and say things. Oh, well, you know, I just want people to see Jesus in me. And I think if they just, if I can just imitate Jesus, if I can just live like Christ, people will just see the light that's shining in me and they'll be saved. What do you think about that? <laughs> Tom, what do you think about that? Is that enough? Just let your light shine. What do you think? Good luck on that plan. Good luck on that plan. All right, how good are you, first of all, at imitating Christ? Shall we ask those who live with you? All right, you know, let's, let's start there. All right. Is anybody going to so imitate Christ or imitate Christ so well that that's all you need? Just see the light of your life, the light of your shining face, smiling face. That is not enough. What is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes? It is the gospel. You must speak. You say, I'm afraid to speak. Okay, the Spirit's given for that. Let's be honest. If that's what you're afraid to do, then let the Spirit come and give you boldness. But in Acts chapter 4, isn't that the very thing they received? They received courage. They received boldness. Greek word is parasia, which means literally they said everything God wanted them to say. There was a, an openness of speech and they spoke everything. That was wonderful. All right, number four, power for the church to grow in numbers. Does it matter if a local church is growing numerically? Does it matter? Jim, does that matter? All right. Is there any indication in the book of Acts that growth in numbers matters? Okay, what indication, Jim, do you find in the book of Acts that growth in numbers matters? 
3,000 were added to their number that day. Okay? Uh, and then again, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Okay? Uh, is there any indication that numbers are not all important in the book of Acts? That all they cared about was numbers. Well, those two uh, references I cited, it's the last you get of numbers in the book of Acts. So that tells you something too. All right? It's important, but not all important. But let's keep in mind what we're talking about. Numbers of what? Growth in numbers. Numbers of what? Of people, of souls, of individuals. Does Jesus care about that? Yes, he does. So therefore I say, if, like our church is, you're living in a generally growing area in which there are lots of people around who haven't heard the gospel, if that church is not growing in numbers, something is wrong. It just is. There's just something wrong. Now, I'm not in any way vitiating the power of uh, God or the sovereignty of God, but I'm just asking, what is God doing in the world? What, is the, what are all these promises, etc.? And my feeling is the church that's healthy will be growing numerically. Now, I, I know that there can be unusual providences where a church can be very healthy and very bold in reaching out and very faithful with the gospel and not seeing fruit. That can happen. That can happen. I don't think that's our situation, okay? But I do think that that can happen. But there we're just speaking theoretically. I actually don't know of any case like that ever, okay? I think generally when a church isn't growing in numbers, it's because people have stopped being bold with the gospel. They've stopped going across barriers. They're afraid. They're pulling in. They're, they're getting comfortable. And the Spirit is given to move us out of that, all right? My feeling is if that's so, just be honest about it. Come to the Lord and, and tell Him. You know, that's what I'm doing on behalf of the whole church. Uh, I, I want to see more people baptized in this church. I do. I want to see more people saved. I want to see more, more of you leading people to Christ. I'd like to see you become spiritual grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. It happens faster than biological, you know that? It can go really fast, okay? You could lead someone to Christ, and two months later, they could lead somebody to Christ. And before you know it, you know, they're saying, well, I don't know how to, how to disciple somebody. I've, I've only been discipled for two months myself. You know, it can happen that way, all right? So my feeling is let's have a passion for that. The price tag is boldness. You have to be courageous. You have to be willing to open your mouth and speak. And right here we have indications of how it happens. All right, the power for the church growing numbers. Yes, sir, Horace. The church should come to church to show love inside these walls. But we need to go out of the area and out of the church to show love to the unsaved out there to dwell man. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Thank you, Horace, for saying that. We've got to go out. Got to go out. You know something? If they're coming to church, there's already been a lot of work done in their hearts. Already people have reached out in a lot of ways. We just need to be willing to do it. Susan, go ahead. Yeah, well, let's let the Lord lead on that. I, I, I do think it takes guts and courage, but guts and courage don't save. That's something that God must do. It's a miracle that that I uh, must do. I mentioned this last week. This is the three by three sign up sheet. I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt the teaching for a minute so that it has time to go through by the time we're done. All I'm suggesting about this, nobody, you don't have to do this, but I think this is a good way uh, that we can be praying for each other and perhaps holding each other accountable on the issue of evangelism. The idea is that you would covenant together with two other people of your choosing. The three of you together would each pray for three individuals. Uh, basically, you would therefore be praying for nine people, your three, and then the six that belong to the other two. Each would be praying every day for these nine people that they would come to faith in Christ. All right? That's all. Now, you know that's not all, don't you? <laughs> What else might there be other than just praying for these lost people? 
you actually, the three of you could actually go to each of the nine and just check, check them. I mean, just go witness to them, whatever. But just as the Lord leads. All it's, there's just two columns. It says, I am interested in being part of a three by three. Please match me with two others. Or I'm already participating in three by three. You could be in a third category, namely, I don't want you to match me up. I'll do it. You don't have to sign anything. Just do it, okay? But the point is just get get moving off the dime. While we're interrupted here, um, I also have some books here of uh, by Lee Strobel called The Case for Easter. And what we're going to be doing is urging members of this church to invite 10 non-Christians to church this Easter, all right? I'm going to urge you to just step out and just invite 10 people uh, to church, all right? Of those, if one out of 10 comes and if everyone in the church invites 10 people, we won't be able to get in here, all right? Basically, we have 400 people that come, so that would be like another 400, all right? It would be incredible. You know, whatever God wants to do. These are, you can take a couple of them. We've got a lot more in Sunday school that will be given through your Sunday schools. Just take them and give them to people. And even if they don't come to church, you can say, read this, all right? Lee Strobel was a a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, I think it was, did a, a book called Case for Christ, and then Case for Faith, and Case for Other Things. Now this is Case for Easter. Uh, so at the end of the time, just come up and, and I've got three boxes of them. I think there are 20 in each. So there's 60 books up here. If you feel like you got some people that you could give them to, give them to them. All right. Just take two or three of them and go out and give them. But when you give them, invite them to come to church here on Easter. OK. Or even this Sunday. All right. So that's the end of the commercials. All right. Let's go back. I'll just leave that right there. Let's keep going. Power for the church to grow in number. Say again. No, you can invite anybody to church. I mean, invite people to church. It's good to come to church. The thing about Easter, though, is that we find that unsaved people or unchurched people tend to go to church on Easter. They just tend to. And my feeling is it'd be nice if some of them came here. All right. That's all. And we will uh, seek to treat people right. You know, we're getting uh, people ready for in the host ministry to, to, to just do some. Uh, greeting. We're, we're sending out a letter to all the members asking them not to park in the central part of this north parking lot. You'll get a letter pretty soon. We're not trying to be insulting, but we just want to open it up for visitors. So if you are, if you're able-bodied, now if you're handicapped, then use those those spots. Just use them. I, that's fine. But if you're able to walk, the ministerial staff we park over in the uh, gravel lot and have for a year. Landis does too. Uh, that the church owns that lot. I don't know if you knew that. We are, we own the church owns that gravel lot across the street. Um, but you can park there. You can park over in the in the school uh, administrative building over there. You can park to the outside parts of this north lot over here. But we're trying to just open up the center for visitors. And you know something, we we can't we can't lose because even if no visitors come or park there, the emptiness will be a testimony to each one of you, won't it? All right, just the sheer tumbleweed blowing emptiness should speak to you, okay? <laughs> to invite your neighbors and your friends and coworkers to church, okay? So. No, it doesn't just have to be unbelievers. But, you know, if you know some unbelievers that you've struck up a relationship with, you know, one of the things I find, the later you go on in the Christian life, the fewer unbelievers you know. I think we tend to pull into a Christian ghetto, and we all, the only people we ever know are, are Christians. And so my feeling is let's turn outward and start developing those connections again and, and see. And if all you know are three or four unbelievers that you feel comfortable enough to invite to church, invite them. You know, just see what happens. It's wonderful. Anyway, power for the church to grow in numbers, Acts 9.31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers. See that? Living in the fear of the Lord. There's nothing wrong with growth in numbers. That's a wrong statement. There's everything right. It's wonderful for the church to grow in numbers just as long as those numbers are living in the fear of the Lord. 
It's those are the numbers we want. We don't just want kind of bloated, you know, because we're doing a, hey, look, if we said we'll give out $100 to each visitor to the church, you think we might have a growth in numbers this coming Sunday? You'll come, all right, you'll be there. How many of you would like to come? No, if you're regularly attending, you don't get anything. Sorry, if I've seen your face here, no $100. Listen, the church does not have enough money to do that, and besides which, it would not produce any kingdom growth at all. They'd come here in this building, but that wouldn't save anybody, all right? What we want to do is we want to to see growth in numbers that's connected as it is here in Acts 9.31 with living in the fear of the Lord. That's, that's what we're yearning for. But no one can tell me growth in numbers doesn't matter. Look at Acts 9.31. If it didn't matter, it wouldn't say this. All right, let's keep going. Number five, the Holy Spirit is given to give power and wisdom to organize the church with human leadership. Uh, Acts 20.28 20, says, Keep watch over yourselves and of all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Okay, so the, the uh, Holy Spirit, it says, has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit's an organizer. You know, it bothers me when some people think that the Holy Spirit is only good at improvisation, like a pianist who just sits down, doesn't know what he's going to play, and then suddenly, boom. The Holy Spirit's a great planner. He's a great organizer. Okay? I actually pray for the leading of the Spirit when I write sermons on Tuesdays that I'm going to preach in four weeks. Does the Spirit lead? Is he able to do that? He can plan longer than four weeks. I want you to know that. He's able to do that. But some people say the Spirit led and then he's, you know, the Spirit is a planner. He is an organizer. Number six. No, no. They're about 90% the same though. So what happens in the the study on Tuesdays under the leadership of the Spirit is important because they're, they're not changed a lot, but they are changed. They are. Number six, power for wisdom in contending for the gospel with unbelievers. All right, I love this. This is one of my favorite moments in church history. It's when Stephen debated with a bunch of Jews from the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews from Cilicia, Tarsus, and some other places. Who do you think Stephen debated with who might have been from Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus, also known as or better known as the, the future apostle Paul, right? And look what it says. This is so incredible. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Isn't that marvelous? Spirit doesn't lose debates. All right. And so the spirit gives you wisdom to know how to talk to people, to reason with them from the scriptures. The spirit gives you that power. Number seven, the spirit gives power for guidance in missionary strategy and direction. The spirit is a strategist. He's able to look at the big picture. He's able also to look at tactics uh, little picture and big picture, the Spirit does it all. Uh, so tactics uh, would be something as minuscule as this. Acts 8.29, the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. All right? Isn't that great? <laughs> that's tactics, right? No, that's not big strategy. Uh, but the Spirit does that. The Spirit's able to say, go to that chariot and stay near it. Have you ever had anything happen to you like that? I have. The Spirit told me to go do something to go be near someone or go start up a conversation or go whatever. Definitely it happens. I want it to happen more. And I think the more obedient we are to the promptings of the Spirit, the more the Spirit's going to prompt us. Okay? He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Shall we put it this way then to rearrange a bit? He who is faithful in few will be faithful also in many. Okay? So if you want the Spirit to prompt you a lot, then heed the promptings. When he prompts you to go near a chariot and stay near it, then do it, okay? You say, it's been a long time since I've seen a chariot, okay? Well, that's fine. 
translate it to the 21st century. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, the Spirit also in Acts 13, 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That's big picture strategy. He's got a big work for Barnabas and uh, Saul, Paul, to do. And this is the beginning of the first of their missionary journeys. For some reason, the computer deleted the page number, so I'm really sorry. But we're in doctrinal instruction, subsection 3, power for the evangelists. We're in uh, number 6. All right, we'll get that problem straightened away next time. All right, power for guidance. Also, Acts 16, 6, and 7. I love this one as well. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Isn't that amazing how the Spirit is basically saying no and no? He blocks some things off and causes them to stand still and wait. And what happens next? Do you remember? What happened next? Paul had a dream or a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Isn't that amazing? And so where does he go next? He goes to Philippi. And it's so amazing and interesting to me that uh, Philippi uh, was named for the father of Alexander the Great. Macedonia is where Alexander the Great was from. It's the launching pad for one of the greatest empires in human history. And what is this man from Macedonia saying to the Apostle Paul? Come over and help us. Uh, How the mighty have fallen. How low are they? None of those earthly conquests will help the Macedonians now. They're in trouble. Uh, They're going to go to hell without the gospel. Come over and help us. And so Paul goes. And it's so beautiful how the gospel retraces the steps of Alexander the Great. Goes right back up the same road comes along the coast and goes right back up and back into Macedonia so that those folks can be saved. Isn't that marvelous? I love it. Uh, Love for enemies, too. Remember how Jonah didn't want to go to the Assyrians? Weren't the Jews conquered by Alexander the Great? Wasn't Antiochus Epiphanes who defiled the Holy of Holies? Wasn't he Greek? Yes, he was. The whole story is the Greeks that dominated Palestine. And yet, a number of centuries later, it's a Jewish man who's going back to share the gospel with these very same people. Love for enemies, it's a beautiful thing. All right, number eight, power for resolution of doctrinal differences. Uh, This issue, of course, is the issue of circumcision. Do these Gentile converts need to be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses? Do they? Um, The answer is no. Acts 15, 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us. Isn't that a great expression? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And then he gives them four requirements, uh, etc. But uh, the Holy Spirit and us, we agreed uh, to not burden you with circumcision. But it's the Spirit that led. The Spirit led. Uh, Number nine, power for taking bold new steps in mission frontiers. Acts 10, 19 and 20. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. This is Acts 10. This is the great uh, moment of the uh, coming of the gospel to the Gentiles. Why would Peter hesitate to go with these men and go into the house of Cornelius? Landis, why would he not want to go to Cornelius' house? And he told him that too. He said, you're well aware it's against our law for a Jew to even 
associate with a Gentile or eat with him. What an interesting way to begin a gospel presentation. <laughs> when that's, you know, it's amazing how we can say these offensive things and it doesn't matter because the spirit is there and Cornelius is about to come to Christ. I'm not recommending that that's how you should start. I want you to know I usually don't eat with your type, you know. <laughs> so I just, just want you to know. I mean, that's not a good approach, etc. But it was a well-known fact. That's why Pilate went out to the Jews rather than the Jews coming into Pilate. He knew they weren't coming in. So if he wanted to have any concourse with them, he's got to go out to them well-known. And so why not talk about it? He said, but here I am. I'm in your house. And his actions there spoke louder than his maybe perhaps offensive words. He was in the house. And it was the Holy Spirit who told him to do it. And so therefore the Spirit is able, gives us power to take bold steps in missionary endeavor. Do you see it? I mean, that was a bold step for Peter. And he took some flack for it too. Very much so. Chapter 11 is all about that. Took some flack. All right. Power Four, number 10, power for encouragement and even joy during difficult trials. Uh, Acts 13:52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You read in context, it's in the context of persecution. It's also in the context of fruitfulness. It's in Pisidian Antioch. They've had some fruit. They've had some opposition. They're expelled from the region. They shake the dust off their feet. And yet they're filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit ministers joy even during difficult tri- trials. Number 11, power to compel evangelists to keep going despite immense trials. Power to compel. He moves you, keeps you going so you don't give up. Acts 20, 22 and 23, Paul says this, and now compelled by the Spirit, we're going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen uh, to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. What an, what an incredible thing that is. The the Spirit does two things in this little quote here that I've given you. What are they? What are the two things the Spirit does for Paul? He compels him to do what? To go to Jerusalem, right? What else does the Spirit do in this this section here? He warns him that what? He's going to prison. (laughs) The Spirit does both. I'm compelling you to go, but I want you to know you're going to be arrested and thrown into prison. So it's an amazing thing how the Spirit is very honest about the persecution, and yet I'm going anyway. Where does that courage come from? Where does that otherworldly mentality come from where I don't care what happens to me? The very next thing he says is, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So in other words, he's saying, I don't care what happens to me. I think the Spirit works that too. Compelled by the Spirit, I'm going. And he warns him as well. All right, number 12. Power uh, through inspiring the Scriptures. By the way, notice all of these quotes are coming from the book of Acts. The Spirit is majorly all over the gospel endeavor in the book of Acts. Do you see it? Uh, This is uh, when they're praying. Uh, The church is praying after they've been warned. We already talked about it. They've been warned uh, to stop preaching. And as they're praying, they say, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our servant, our father, David. All right. So it was the spirit that inspired the scripture. And uh, that's the basis of their whole evangelistic effort. Every time that Paul goes into a new city, they go into the synagogues. And what's his strategy? What does he do there? Well, he reasons with the Jews from the scripture. Well, it was the spirit that gave the scripture to begin with. It was the spirit that inspired Uh, David to write Psalm 16 and Psalm 22. It was the spirit that inspired Isaiah to write Isaiah 53. It was the spirit that gave us the prophecies to begin with. The spirit did that. The spirit was planning evangelism long before any of us were born. 
Number 13, the Spirit gives power in prayer. As we've already noted, Acts 4.31, after they prayed, the place where their meeting was shaken and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Power in prayer. And then number 14, power for sanctification. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Who's uh, Peter speaking to there? Bible trivia. Isn't that wonderful? Sapphira. Yes, Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias is already dead and Sapphira doesn't know it yet and he she's about to die too the spirit therefore is working holiness in the local church the spirit works sanctification the spirit makes the church holy all right there is one more way the spirit empowers Christians for evangelism and that is by sanctification sanctification personal sanctification 14 number 14 was group sanctification in the church here we're talking about individual and personal sanctification sanctification is the work of the Spirit in the heart of a Christian causing that person to walk in God's laws, love for God and love for neighbor, and to put sin to death. Personal sin greatly hinders our effectiveness in evangelism, so the Spirit was given to keep us holy. He warns us against sin and teaches us to say no to ungodliness. When we do sin, He convicts us of it, causes us to grieve over it, to hate it, to repent and turn from it and to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the Spirit's work. He keeps short accounts with us so that we can keep fresh and sharp and ready for evangelism. Do you see that? Because it's sin that, that hinders our evangelistic work. Paul speaks even more directly about the Spirit's role in sanctification in Romans 8 and Galatians 5. We've already quoted Romans 8, 4. Romans 8.13, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You know, I think it's so powerful there. Yes, the Spirit leads us to evangelize. We've already looked at leading. For example, go up to that chariot and stay near it. That's the leadership of the Spirit. But before He leads you to do that, He leads you to do this. And what He leads you to do here is put sin to death. That's the leading of the Spirit in Romans 8, 13 and 14. It's putting sin to death. And so he works that internal holiness in you while he works the external work of witnessing. Those are those two journeys we've talked about so many times. The internal journey of sanctification, it's by the Spirit. That external journey of worldwide evangelization, that's by the Spirit as well. And Galatians 5, 24 and 25, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Pure vessels. God will only use vessels that are pure. Now, I, I, I guess in one sense that's true, but you know, let's, let's be honest. Uh, none of us are perfectly pure. And I've actually seen God use me in days when my conscience wasn't clean, when my conscience wasn't clear. And you know, I think that's a beautiful thing. You know, I feel like, you know, I've, I've done some things or disobeyed in a certain way. I can't witness today. I just can't. I'm not a pure vessel. I actually think the devil's telling me that. I think we have to take opportunity to confess and all that. But at the same time, the Spirit can use us at any time, at any place. And I have found I can confess sin and be ready and all that. But then I think to myself, who am I to witness? And my conscience is weak. I don't feel ready. I feel like there's no way that I'm going to be faithful or be able to obey God. And then God uses me anyway. I think that at that moment, it's one of those things where the Scripture says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's when you think, oh, I'm so ready. I've been doing so well and been getting up even earlier for my quiet times and all that. You're so full of yourself. 
you know, but it's those other times you're so broken. And then you meet some other person who's broken over sin. And it's like, oh boy, can I agree with that? You know, and the two of you commiserate together and it ends up being one of your greatest witnessing opportunities. So no days are disqualified. But in general, we want to be pure uh, from sin. Uh, this does not mean he can only use perfect people for then evangelism would never occur. He's not looking for just perfect people. All right. But it does mean that if we cherish sin in our hearts and do not fight it with hatred, we will be, become progressively useless to God. Eventually, we'll, we will have disqualified ourselves from service by our sin. This is precisely what Paul means uh, when he says, I beat my body and make it my slave uh, so that after I've preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified for the prize. The Spirit lives within us to make us holy. This is essential to a life of fruitful evangelism. Also, growing in love, the Spirit makes us love God and our lost neighbor more and more. This is essential to enable us to evangelize properly and to be courageous over the long haul. Love and love alone is the best motive for bold evangelism. Since we uh, do not naturally love God or neighbor, the Spirit must work this in us. That process is called sanctification, a growth of love by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. All right, so the Spirit, all of that was about sanctification. The Spirit is working holiness in you. The Spirit is working love in you. The Spirit is at work in you. Okay, so how many ministries does the Spirit do that I've listed here in the evangelist? How many are there? Well, it says it right on the page. <laughs> Thank you. Fourteen. Fourteen different things. The Spirit's working in the individual and in the local church. Fourteen different ways to work in us to get us to evangelize. Isn't that marvelous? There are probably more. Well, these are just ones that I found looking through the book of Acts. All right. Luke 24. 48 and 49, these 14 ministries demonstrate the Spirit's power for evangelism. This is why Jesus commanded them to wait for the Holy Spirit before they would begin conquering the world for Christ. Luke 24, it says, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, namely the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So he told them, don't go anywhere until you get the power from on high. Be clothed with power. The church today must also rely on the Holy Spirit for every aspect of evangelism. We can do nothing apart from Christ, John 15, 5, and He enables us to be bold witnesses, bold witnesses through His Holy Spirit. Friends, if you feel overwhelmed by the task of evangelism or if fear or ignorance or intimidation or your own sinfulness have conspired to eliminate you from effectiveness as a witness, the Holy Spirit's power is the only answer for you. It's the Spirit's power that will get you back in the game again. The Spirit's power that get you moving. The Spirit has come to give you power to evangelize. Isn't that exciting? But that's only one half of the equation. The Spirit's also at work in the evangelized. The Spirit is working in the person you're going to go share with. And that's exciting too. You're not starting cold. You're not going empty with somebody. The Spirit's already been at work in their lives. The Holy Spirit also works within the hearts of the people we're evangelizing. In fact, without that work, none of the people we will proclaim the gospel to will ever believe. Will ever believe. Remember from last week that unsaved people are dead in transgressions and sins, Ephesians 2.1, and must be born by the Spirit, John 3.5, or they cannot enter heaven. The Spirit does many things in the hearts of the hearers. Let's start with the first one, orchestration. The Spirit orchestrates. The Holy Spirit shows His sovereignty over daily life by orchestrating, witnessing opportunities in amazing ways. Isn't it beautiful how He can match you up with a person and you're just the one that He wants to witness to? He orchestrates these situations. 
orchestrates them. Uh, he prepares the hearer by leading him or her through specific experiences which till the soil of their hearts, uh, of their hearts for the seed that they're about to receive. On that particular day, perhaps they've heard something on the radio or they've had their worst day on the job or received some specific news, the net effect of which prepares them for the witness they'll hear uh, from the evangelist. Isn't that exciting? I mean, things happen. Maybe they're having some marital problems. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they just got a bad diagnosis from a doctor. Maybe they were trying to get into a college and they got rejected. Maybe they got accepted. Who knows? You never know what God's going to use. But something's going on. That's why you just got to be able to talk to people and listen to them and find out what's happening. Because you want to try to find out what the Spirit's been doing. What kind of work has He been doing in the person's heart? The Spirit's orchestration of events stretches back in time as well, going deep into their formative years. He has been working in their hearts since they were born, orchestrating them for the, uh, the moment of faith in Christ. Now, I don't believe that the Spirit does this for everybody. I don't. But I do think He does it for all people who come to Christ. I just believe that with all my heart. For everybody who comes to Christ, he orchestrates and works in their hearts to bring them. Psalm 22, it says, you uh, made me trust even at my mother's breast. It's a word for faith. Basically, you taught me how to believe while I was nursing. Later in life, as I've said before, the capacity for faith got transferred to an invisible God. But the, the ability to believe and to trust happened while David was nursing, he says. Psalm 22. And so they, God has been orchestrating things in this person's life, getting them ready for the day when they'll transfer all of that trust and love and faith to Jesus and finally believe in him and love him. Furthermore, the Spirit specifically picks the evangelist and the words the evangelist will use. Everything seems to click into place, but it's not an accident. No, it's the Spirit's orchestration. Finally, the Spirit orchestrates the actual witnessing occasion. Normally, noisy children quietly sit on the couch. I told you that story a few weeks ago and read. The phone either rings or doesn't depending on the Spirit's perfect plan. It's a marvelous thing to see. Isn't it exciting to be right in the center of something that God's doing in somebody's life? That's a really exciting thing. A very good example, as we've mentioned, is the Ethiopian eunuch. Perhaps the best illustration of the Spirit's orchestration of witnessing event is the account of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. The eunuch had been prepared for the gospel by his trip to Jerusalem to worship. We have no idea why he went, but this itself was the result of years of preparation by the Spirit on his heart. On the way home, he happened to be reading Isaiah 53. I mean, there's a lot of great things in Isaiah, but that's, a, that's an easy inroad to the gospel. He happens to be reading Isaiah 53, <clears throat> the clearest reference to Christ in the Old Testament. The Spirit also orchestrated the witness, telling Philip to go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, and telling him to go to that chariot and stay near it, Acts 8.26 and 8.29. The witness uh, proceeded from there, but everything had been perfectly laid in place by the Spirit's orchestration. You know something? You get the exact same thing in Acts 10. Remember how Acts 10 begins. Cornelius, the unbelieving but open Gentile, is praying and an angel comes and says, send men to Joppa for a man called Peter. He will send you a message by which you and all your family will be saved. So the Spirit works that end of the equation. Then on the other end, Peter, what's happening to him? Do you remember? He's hungry. He's going up on the roof. What happened to him? And the voice tells Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. 
And he said for the fourth time in the Bible, never, Lord. I love that. <laughs> Peter never, you know, he never changes on some things. He's good at saying, no, Jesus, no, God, I won't do it. But at any rate, I mean, if ever there's a guy who can say never to God, it's Peter. And that's post-Pentecost. Notice that. You know, you think all the problems are cleaned up by then. They're not. <laughs> he's still got his issues. He's got to be told three times. And he's still wondering about the sheet when the men, and it literally says that, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him. And then it says, while Peter was still wondering about the vision, the men said, blah, blah, blah. He's linking the vision to the men who come from Cornelius. The whole thing's orchestrated. Then he goes back with them. And by the time he gets back, there's a huge house full of people that Cornelius has invited and they're, and they're saying, well, an angel came and he told us to send to you for a message. And I got all my friends here and we're waiting to hear what the Lord has for you to say. I mean, the whole thing's been orchestrated. And so he preaches the gospel. And while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit comes on those who listen. This is spirit. Do you see? And my feeling is I want to be involved in that. Don't you? I don't want to be left out. He's doing it now. It's going on now. It's going on in the triangle region now. It's going on all over the world now. Let's not be left out. Let's get involved in what the Spirit is doing. Power on the evangelized. All right, he also, not just orchestration, but also conviction. Conviction. The Holy Spirit is specifically given to convict the hearer of sin. Jesus said, unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no more, in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. That's a good place to stop. All right, the Spirit is at work in the evangelist. The Spirit is in work at work 14 different ways in the evangelist and in the local church to evangelize. The Spirit's also at work in the evangelized, getting them ready, orchestrating things, convicting, working. Any questions or observations about the things we've talked about tonight? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.